So in the beginning of January, we started this series. It's titled, Am I Really a Christian? And we are doing this series so that we can evaluate the credibility of our confession. Okay, We are seeking to examine whether we have a living faith or a dead faith. Whether we are truly in Christ or whether we are apart from Christ. These are very important. And one hope that we have throughout this series is that if you really are a Christian, you will have more assurance of your salvation. You'll have ever-increasing joy uh, with your faith. Also, we hope that if you are not a Christian, you profess Christ, but you're not really, and this shows you that, that you'll be made aware of your false assurance and that you'll repent, believe in Christ, and be saved and have a good, genuine assurance that comes from the indwelling Spirit. Now, on that note, what I want to do is just review quickly what we've gone over in the past two weeks. It's going to be Q&A. And so the first teaching that we looked at was built off this statement. You are not a Christian if you are not regenerated, or as you'll see throughout the Bible, born again. You're not a Christian if you're not born again. Uh, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be born again? What did we learn there? What is the new birth? No, no, go ahead. Okay, um, to be born again is to be given a new spirit um, by God that renews our affections to actually do things uh, that are pleasing to God and uh, our sins are washed away. That's good. So, sins are washed away, you have a new spirit, God gives you His spirit, and we're able to be obedient to God. That's good. Why is the new birth so necessary? Why must God impart new spiritual life to us? What's wrong with us naturally? We're dead in sin. We are dead in sin. And so we are dead spiritually, spiritual corpses, and we need God through the ministry of the Spirit to raise us to new life. If that doesn't happen, you're not a Christian. You will not see the kingdom of God. What are the first two evidences of having been born again? So if you want to evaluate whether you have been born again, what are the evidences that you have been born again? Usually the first two. What do you think? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Faith in what? Oh, in Christ. Okay, that's good. I was just, just going to challenge that just a little bit, just so you can give it a little clarity. I know you knew that. So faith in Christ, okay? So you will see Christ as delightful. You will see Him as beautiful, as desirable. You will want Him, okay? You will see Him crucified and desire Him. Something that had previously never happened in your life, okay? And also repentance. You have a godly sorrow over sin. You see what sin costs Christ. Therefore, you seek to put that to death and to pursue Christ's likeness. That's good. The second teaching we went over, um, the one from last week, was built off this statement. You are not a Christian if you are not progressively being sanctified. So progressive sanctification. What does it mean to be progressively sanctified? What does that mean? To continue to put sin to death. So that's the negative aspect, absolutely. What's the positive aspect? You put sin to death and you do what? You become more holy. Is this something we just do in and of ourselves, Erica? No, no. We're able to do that because of the power of the Spirit inside of us. Okay? So, by the Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh and pursue righteousness. 
That's amazing. If that is not happening in our lives, then we are not Christians. And the best way to evaluate that is not to look at today. Okay? So, has anybody in here ever had a really bad day when it came to sanctification? Yes. If you're not raising your hand, you're lying to my face right now. So we don't evaluate it just by looking at one 24-hour period. Rather, you look at maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe a decade, and you say, have I progressively, by the power of the Spirit, put some of this sin to death and become more righteous in Christ? That's what you look at. And if that never happens, it's like there's no spiritual life in you. You are still spiritually dead. So that was our teaching from last week. Now, today what I want to do is look at this. Okay, this is a statement we are going to be working with. You are not a Christian if you do not have a different relationship with the church. I'm going to talk about this in a very basic and general sense because the more I looked at that thesis statement, the more I realized how dangerous it actually is to say that. So I'm going to be very vague, very broad at first. Then from there, I'm going to zoom in and we're just going to evaluate ourselves. So I'm aware how dangerous that is. Just bear with me. I want to address one danger that I see facing our generation, all the while navigating another danger that plagued another generation. So what's the danger facing our generation? And this is the idea of spiritual individualism, okay? Spiritual individualism. Lone Ranger Christianity. One guy explained it like this. This extreme so prioritizes a personal relationship with Christ that it forgets the role of the church altogether. To many evangelicals, conversion is a personal encounter with Christ and growth in Christ is too. One is nourished spiritually through books, conferences, podcasts, Christian radio, parachurch ministries, and Bible studies. Spiritual individualism. This is a very real thing. Many people think that Christianity is simply individualistic. I think this has been prominent with the older generation and it's seeped into our generation. We give very little thought to the church because we think that this whole Christian thing is something we merely do as individuals and not as a corporate body. So I want to address that danger. Now, as I address, as I address that danger, I definitely want to avoid this other danger that plagued another generation. And that's this overly institutional view of the church. Okay? This type of thinking was prominent in the medieval Catholic Church. They argued that if you were not a part of the Roman medieval Catholic Church, you were not a Christian. Okay, They were the dispensers of saving grace. As soon as you got out from their wing, if you got out from under their wing, you were no longer receiving a, a constant flow of saving grace from the Catholic Church. Therefore, you weren't saved. That's why when they excommunicated Luther and people like that, they're saying, you're an anathema. You're cursed, okay? You're not a Christian. So we don't want to go there. I do not want you to leave here and say, man, Philip said if I don't regularly attend FBC Durham, I'm not a Christian. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. So I want to avoid that danger all the while addressing the other danger. And that's going to be difficult. So Lord willing, I will be given grace to do this. So let's see. Let's begin with this. What is the universal church and the local church? So here's a question. What is the universal church? What do we mean by that? So what's the universal church? That's for y'all. Go ahead. It's 
believers everywhere throughout the world. Believers everywhere throughout the world. Okay. I would even add to that just a, t- a tiny bit. I would say um, regardless of time. So the universal church is all those for whom Christ died. Okay, so you think about Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So right now the universal church is in China. It's in Africa. It's in South America, Latin America. It's in America. Can All of these places. Okay, and we're talking about believers throughout all times. Now, what is the local church? What do we mean by that? Who could, who could uh, give us a definition of the local church? A church in your community. Okay, a church in your community. <clears throat> yeah, so a specific group of Christians that assemble together in a particular geographical location, your community, in order to worship God and serve one another. Okay? In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he writes this, to the churches in Galatia. So there's numerous churches that meet throughout the region of Galatia. Okay, They assemble together to worship God and also to serve one another. Um, to the people in Corinth, he said, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So the Christians in Corinth that assemble together for the purposes of worshiping God and serving one another. Now... At the most basic level, what I'm trying to get across today with this teaching has to do with the local church. My statement earlier was, you are not a Christian if you do not have a different relationship with the church. Here is what I mean in the most basic sense of that statement. When you are not a Christian, you are an outsider in regards to the local church. So, though you're here right now, if you are an unbeliever, if you are not a Christian, you are an outsider. If you are a Christian and you frequent this place often, you are an insider. So, just turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 4-13. And this is where I'm getting this outsider-insider terminology. 1 Corinthians 5, 4-13. I'm not going to read all of that. Alright, so in verse 4 it says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So these are people that are assembled together in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're about to practice church discipline. You're going to hear more about that later on when Andy preaches through it. So I'm not going to keen in on that too, too much. Now, I want you to look down at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What have I to do with judging those in the world? I don't have any right doing that. It is, he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
So you see outsider language and you see insider language. Outsiders is in regards to the world. We don't judge the world. We don't put requirements for faithful Christian living on people of the world. It's like they can't do that. They don't have the Spirit. They've never been born again. But for people in the church, we do because we have the Spirit. Now, those outside the church are non-Christians that are in need of the gospel. Um, that does not mean that they're not able to attend Sunday morning worship or college connections class. Rather, it means that even though they are here and present, they are still outsiders. They are not a part of this local assembly of Christians, FBC Durham. This is why if you want to be a member at FBC Durham, we will do a prospective new member interview. Now, in this interview, we seek to see if you have a credible profession of faith in Christ and that you know the gospel. If you don't have a credible profession that you are a Christian, that you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, have believed in him, then we won't allow you to become a member. We won't allow you to become an insider, okay? Now, those inside the church are Christians that believe in Christ as Savior. So if you know the gospel and make a credible profession of faith, then we will vote you in as a member here at FBC. We will allow you to be a part of this local body because you are an insider. You are a Christian. Okay? So, if you are not a Christian, you're an outsider of the church. You remain in Satan's domain of darkness is how the New Testament talks about this. If you are a Christian, then you are an insider. God has graciously delivered you from the domain of Satan, transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and made you an insider in a local assembly of believers that gather together in specific geographical locations. Okay? Your relationship to the local church has changed because you are converted. Whereas formerly you were an outsider, now you're an insider. Now, that's what I mean in the most basic sense. So questions for clarity purposes. Does anybody, is anybody thinking about anything as I say some of that stuff? Okay, are you sure? Samson, go ahead. Does the local church necessarily have a pastor? Does it, so, as you look throughout the New Testament scriptures, it's clear that there is a leadership structure in the church, and that leadership structure consists of elders and deacons, okay? And so, there are going to be pastors at each local assembly of believers, and those people are going to be teaching and preaching, and that's why the New Testament tells us we are to submit and obey faithful, godly leaders. So, there will be leaders in the church, yeah. Does that answer your question? Okay. Now, I'm not going to argue church membership in this teaching. Uh, Some people don't think church membership is biblical. I think I could argue that it is biblical, but I'm not going to do that throughout this teaching. What I'm saying is that even if you're not a, if you don't believe in church membership, you still are going to frequent a geographical location for the purposes of worshiping. And when you do, you're going to be an insider, okay? Those are the leaders who are going to be shepherding you and guiding you and all that. So that's what I mean in this basic sense. And y'all can stop me for clarity purpose. I want to be clear on this. Now, what I want to do is give you the biblical precedence for the local church. I want to do this because I've heard people say that the idea of the local church is not even biblical. So there are people out there like that. Some people claim that it's too institutional or something like that. So let's begin looking at just three reasons the idea of the local church is thoroughly biblical. Okay? So these are just three reasons. There's plenty more, but this is all we have time for. The first reason is this. The reason I'm doing this, because if I want you to be actively involved in the life of a local church, 
if that's the goal of this teaching, then I need to establish the biblical precedence of it, okay? You need to know that the local church is an idea that God had and that he intends for us to be a part of, okay? So here's the biblical precedence. First reason is this. God has consistently used corporate bodies or groups of people to display his glory. This is a consistent pattern throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve in the garden, they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply so that they could fill the entirety of the earth and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what they're supposed to do. That's a group of people that are going to be doing that. They did not do that, so the Lord brought about a flood, judgment on the earth, destroying every living person except eight people. Okay, The Lord preserved Noah and seven other people. They were then supposed to fulfill the creation mandate again. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. So they were supposed to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. They too failed. The Lord established a covenant with Abraham, but not just with Abraham, also his descendants. Okay. And when the Lord chose to redeem a people for himself, he chose the nation of Israel as a whole. He didn't just choose Moses. He said, hey, I'm going I'm to gather these Israelites that are in the land of Egypt that are slaves, and I'm going to make them a people for myself. And I'm going to make all the world know how great I am because of how I deal with Israel. Also, it is clear that the church in the New Testament does have continuity with the Israel of the Old Testament. God chose to gather up Israel to be a holy nation. He purposed for Israel to worship and glorify Him and make Him known throughout the whole world. God has done the same thing with the church. He has chosen the church to worship and glorify Him and to make Him known throughout the entirety of the world. That's what we do as a church. We gather together to worship, to adore Him, and to make Him known. So that's the first point. God consistently uses corporate bodies or groups of people to display His glory throughout the world. The second reason for the biblical precedence of the church is this. The Lord intended for His people to gather together to worship. The Lord intended for His people to gather together to worship. This is a lot of Old Testament, but it's good to be familiar with a lot of this stuff. Both the tabernacle and the temple were places where the people of Israel would gather together to worship Yahweh, to worship the one true God. Now, after the Babylonians destroyed the temple, Jews being scattered throughout the ancient world, that's what happened during the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians come in, destroy Solomon's temple, and take all the Jews captive. Not all of them, some of them were left. But most of the Jews captive, and then the Jews were scattered throughout the ancient world. Well, when they were scattered, they erected or built uh, synagogues for the purposes of worshiping. They built synagogues all over the ancient world. Jews would assemble in those synagogues on the Sabbath, Saturday, to say the Shema. So this is Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They still do that. I was evangelizing a Jewish woman last week, and she actually mentioned, it's like, yeah, yeah, I used to always go uh, to the synagogue and say the Shema. And so they still do this stuff. Um, They would also be there. They would be praying together. They would read Old Testament Scripture. Uh, They would give an interpretation. A lot of people weren't speaking Hebrew at that time. They were adopting the languages of the day, so they would give an interpretation of what is being said. And then they would give an address from the Old Testament Scriptures, like a sermon, okay? And then there will be a benediction, a blessing, similar to what Wes does at the end of every corporate worship service. This is what the Jews were doing in the Old Testament. And also, when we see the life of Jesus, Jesus is still doing this stuff. 
Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogues on Saturday, the Sabbath. Mark 6, 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, after Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead victoriously and he ascended into heaven, the apostles carried on this pattern. They went to the synagogues to teach about how Jesus is the Christ. He is God over all. Acts 9, 19 through 20. This is right after Saul was converted, or Apostle Paul. For some days, he, Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Acts 13, 5. This is Barnabas and Saul. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Acts 13, 14 through 16, it's a little later on. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now listen to this. After the reading of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, Paul and Barnabas, and said this. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it now. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he began to preach from the Old Testament scriptures. Now before long... It was evident that Jews were not going to allow a bunch of Christians to worship in their synagogues. Why would I say that? Why would Jews end up having a really big problem with people walking into the synagogue and saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He's God over all, and you need to worship and obey Him? Why would that be a problem for Jews? What do y'all think? This is a big deal. Go ahead. Um, I guess in their mind it would sort of sound like idolatry. Yeah. It's idolatry. That's why Saul was walking around putting people in prison and also stoning people that were worshiping Jesus. They thought it was a false god. So Jews weren't going to put up with this for long. So with that being the case, Jews pushed Christians out of the synagogues. Christians began to assemble together in individual houses on the first day of the week. So not Saturday, but Sunday. And this is in remembrance of the resurrection of Christ. To read the scriptures, participate in the Lord's Supper, pray, give, and sing. So, Alex, go ahead. In regards to the synagogue thing, could it also be some fear-based mentality there because it overturns their entire religious infrastructure like a fear that they could become irrelevant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's opposition to idolatry, but I think it's a whole lot of other stuff as well. They don't want them doing this. Every time Paul does do it, he ends up stoned or imprisoned or something like that. And so, absolutely. They, Jews, did not like this at all. All right, so... They start going to individual houses and assembling together there to worship God. So Acts 27, on the first day of the week, so that's Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul taught with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. This is also when Eutychus, listening to Paul preach all evening, fell from like the third floor to his death. So... He fell asleep during a sermon. I think there are some people in here that fall asleep when I teach. I'm not looking at anybody. Josh. Fall asleep sometimes. So that encourages me. Even the Apostle Paul had people fall asleep on him. Josh, I'm just kidding. I'm saying that. I know you can take it. I know you can take it. All right. So 1 Corinthians 16, 2. 
on the first day of every week, so now we're talking about Sunday, each of you is to put something aside, we're talking about financial stuff, and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So be ready to give when you assemble together for the benefit of Jews in Jerusalem that are suffering a severe famine. That's what he's saying. So they're giving financially. And also, 1 Timothy, I'm just putting this here because this is what they were doing in these assemblies. If you were a pastor, this is what you're going to do. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, preaching, and to teaching. Okay? That's what you're going to do when you gather together. Now, this continued to be the case on into the second century. Justin Martyr said this sometime throughout 100 to 200 AD. So around 100 years after Christ ascended into heaven and not long after the apostle John died. So this is, this is what the early church was doing. And this is a pattern that you're going to see. So listen to this. It's a long quote, so just bear with me. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. What does that tell you about the early church's view of the writing of the apostles if they're reading them alongside of the writings of the Old Testament? What does that tell you? Or what should that tell you? believe it's scripture. They believe it's scripture. So they believe that God has spoken through the the apostles. That's huge. So when you read Paul's letters and Peter's letters and stuff like that, that is sacred scripture. God breathed. As long as time permits, then when the reader had ceased, the overseer, the pastor, the elder, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. So he's preaching. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, what are, um, when our prayer is ending, bread and wine and water are brought and the overseer in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving. So they're participating in the Lord's Supper together. And he says, then there is a distribution to each and a participation of over which, so they, they give the Lord's Supper out. It's kind of neat. They would also send the Lord's Supper, the elements, to people that were unable to attend. So widows and people like that, they would send that stuff there because it shows the unity of the body of Christ. I think that's pretty awesome. Anyway, and they who are well-to-do, so people that have lots of money, and willing, give what each thinks fit. So they take a collection uh, for the sake of taking care of the poor. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly. Assembly meaning church. Because it is the first day which God, and I love this, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter made the world. So he's saying, this is when God created the heavens and the earth. Sunday, the first day of the week. But not just that creation. We're talking about the new creation, the new birth. He says this, And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So they commemorate the creation of the heavens and the earth, and then Jesus Christ rising forth from the dead, making us new people. Pretty amazing. So that's why we gather together on Sundays. So the people of God gathering together on a particular day of the week for the purposes of worship is consistent all throughout the Bible and on into the early church. That's the second reason. The last argument is this. The Greek word that is translated as church in your Bible is called ekklesia. In its general sense, it means an assembly, gathering of persons for, the, for one specific purpose, even for a rite, okay? It's not strictly Christian. 
In Acts 19.32, it says, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly, the ecclesia, was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is when they have a riot because of what Paul is teaching. So they're assembling together for one purpose, namely to riot. Okay? Now... The Christian usage was this, a congregation, an individual assembly of Christians for the purposes of worshiping God and serving one another. That's what that term means in a Christian context. Now, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek before the days of Jesus called the Septuagint. This translation was called the Septuagint. Let's see. This same term, ecclesia, is used in referencing uh, the assembly of Jews that are gathering together to, for the purposes of worshiping Yahweh. So there's clear continuity of why they're using the term ecclesia. They even use this in the Old Testament regarding Jews that gather together to worship. So in the New Testament, they inevitably use that same term, church. All right. This is another strong case for the biblical precedence of the local church. God has ordained that assemblies of Christians would gather together for the purposes of worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Now, there's much more that could be said, um, but those are just three reasons to allow us to understand that if we are Christians, if we name Christ, God intends for us to gather together to assemble with other Christians for the purposes of praying, giving, listening to the Scriptures read, listening to the Scriptures preached, listening to the Scriptures taught, and also participating in the Lord's Supper. This is what an insider is to do in the life of a local church. Okay, If you are a Christian, you ought to be doing these these things in a specific geographical location with the people of God. That's what I'm arguing, is that this is a common thing for Christians to do. Now, let's briefly talk about certain reasons why people may not be doing this. And this is going to be a simple question. So why would some people that profess Christ not assemble with other people to listen to the teaching, preaching, reading of the Word, yada, yada, yada? So what are some reasons why people may not do that? What do y'all think? Or some reasons that you've heard. I'm sure you've had conversations about this. It's their only day off. It's their only day off. Okay. So they're not really seeing this as a time of rest where we come and listen to the preaching of the Word. Like, hey, I really just want to chill at the house. I've been busy all week. Okay. So yeah, some people may say, like, hey, I really don't want to do that. It's just another busy day. And I'm not, I'm not down for that. What else? Go ahead. People say they, they just don't like the people there. They don't like the people there. And that could be for numerous reasons, right? It could be they've been scarred by a former church. Some people have really been scarred by a local church. And it's understandable. Uh, it's like Andy Davis says, though. Just because you get food poisoning at one restaurant doesn't mean you don't go to any restaurant, right? And so there are some good, healthy local churches. So if you've been scarred at one and that you're unable to reconcile with them because of a lack of repentance on their end, then find a healthy local church. That's good. And some people just may not like, like the people there. Which, so they're really, really picky, right? I was telling Luke about this. I was like, look, when you read the New Testament, when you read each individual church, each individual letter, I'm just saying, you wouldn't find a church in the New Testament that will be absolutely perfect and fit for every preference you have. When you look at Corinth, I'm just saying, a guy sleeping with his stepmom, okay? People are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Individual Christians are suing other Christians. So, not the perfect picture of a church that you probably are mustering up in your mind, right? But, 
In the church, we bear with one another. If we have a grievance against one another, we forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven us. And so we don't look for like purely what, how is this church going to serve me? It's like, hey, how can I make this church healthy? I know I got a bunch of problems. I know everybody in here has got a bunch of problems. How can I serve this church to build them up in the faith? And how can I be built up? That's really good, Joseph. What else we got? Go ahead. They say the church is just a bunch of scammers looking for money. Bunch of scammers looking for money, you know? Passed the offering plate four times. We don't do that here, but I've seen it done. So, yeah, yeah. So maybe you've seen somebody. It's like, hey, this seems like this is just a place where they're getting a lot of money. Go ahead, Austin. Um, maybe, um, oh, I watch a preacher on the Internet. So you watch a preacher on the Internet. It's like, hey, I do my church. That's that spiritual individualism, right? It's like, hey, man, all I need is K-Love Radio. Alright, I need some K-Love. And all I need is a good sermon online. And I'm doing church. It's like, no, you're not. It's a, the, the term literally means assembly. You're gathering together with other Christians to worship Yahweh, not watch a podcast. Alright, what? For those who are not necessarily Christians, it would be... Uh, sometimes it's intimidating and a lot of... Um, at least some people that I know would think that uh, those who are like associating with them at church would be like they're only trying to to associate with me because they want to you know convert me and stuff, and yeah. not actually like be my friend. So not caring about them as an individual, right? But like a project, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So as an unbeliever, there may be numerous reasons you're not wanting to attend church. There may be numerous reasons that you want to attend church, but that would definitely be one of them. Like, man, people just see me as a project. They don't care about me personally. All right. And so those are really good. Um, I'm not going to go over all the ones that I put down. Y'all covered most of them. So the last one I kind of put down was some people that say that, that profess to be Christians, may not really be a Christian. I'm not saying this is always the case. I'm just saying this may be the case. Some don't attend church because they really aren't Christians. They profess Christ, but they want nothing to do with His bride. They claim God as Father, but they want nothing to do with His other children. They profess that they love God, but they do not love their brother. They champion their love for the Word, but they don't sit under the regular preaching and teaching of it. These kinds of people may not be Christians, okay? It actually says if you've been born again, then you will love your brother, right? And if you don't love your brother, then you're not born again. So one evidence of regeneration is what Nana said. We have new spiritual life, and that new spiritual life leads us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ and you don't want to gather together with them, you may not be a Christian. Now, those are some reasons people that profess Christ may not regularly be attending uh, a local assembly or actively involved in a church. So my statement at the beginning of this teaching was that you are not a Christian if you do not have a different relationship with the church. In its most basic sense, I said that you are not a Christian if you are not an insider in a local church. Rather, you remain an outsider. You're a part of the world. In a more careful way, I'm now going to say that if you are not regularly assembling with other believers for the purposes of worshiping God and lovingly serving your other brothers and sisters in Christ, then you should at least examine whether or not you are a Christian. That should at least lead us to examine ourselves. Now, to finish this teaching, I just want to list out some responsibilities of Christians that regularly assemble together. What does an insider do when they're at a local church? Okay, What do we do? What is required of us as Christians filled with the Holy Spirit that are assembling together with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's see. I could pose this as a question. Let's see. I don't have much time. I'll tell you what. I'm just going to list these out real quick. First, we can begin with the importance of gathering together. Don't neglect it, okay? One of your responsibilities is that you would not neglect 
meeting together, assembling with other Christians for the purpose of worshiping God. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. I'll just read 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So some people inevitably didn't want to gather together here. And the writer of Hebrews says, hey, don't neglect that. Some people are already in the habit of doing that. Don't do that. Meet together and encourage each other to persevere in this faith. This walk is hard. We need each other in the faith. Also, we are to love one another. First John, I mentioned this earlier, says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So we're to love one another well. We seek peace and unity with each other when we're wronged by maybe a brother. We don't just leave the church. Rather, we seek peace and harmony in that. Romans 12, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, uh, 5 through 7, part of it says, Live in such harmony with one another. And then Ephesians, it's beautiful. It says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, There's one body and one spirit. You should recall to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so you look at all of that, one, 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 one. And shouldn't we be one as well? So we, we seek peace with each other. We care for one another physically and spiritually. Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We don't consider everything that we have our own. Rather, we're, we willingly give up stuff for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We watch over one another. This is huge. Not I mentioned this last week or two weeks ago. Uh, Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual shall restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And James 5, 19 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back his sinner from his wonder will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We use our spiritual gifts to build one another up. That's the reason. If you're a Christian and the Spirit of God is inside of you, He has given you a spiritual gift and He has possibly given you numerous spiritual gifts. And let me just tell you, the spiritual gift is not for yourself. Okay? He doesn't give you that for yourself. He gives you that spiritual gift for the sake of building up brothers and sisters in Christ. He means for you to serve your brother. So it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. It's incredible. I love that. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. You are eagerly, intentionally, and deliberately seeking to build up the church with your spiritual gift. That's what insiders do. We bear with one another. Why would we have to bear with one another if we constantly meet together for the sake of worshiping God and serving each other? Why do you think? Why is that command even in the Bible? Sometimes we get into arguments with one another. This might be something recent. Huh? We're talking about loitering last night. Got into good discussion. Okay? And so sometimes you may be upset with a brother or sister in Christ. Sometimes you may have something against them. Sometimes they might have something against you. And Scripture does not say, hey, flee. Go to another church. Find somewhere where they will not be a burden to you. It says, no, 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 no. Bear with one another. Bear with one another. And so that's just a selfless act. If you're, in, if you're super individualistic, you cannot obey that command. We serve one another. 
1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we serve one another. Um, the reason we have all this Christian freedom in Christ Jesus is so that we can love and serve one another. It says in Galatians, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's why we have all this freedom. That's why God has given you all this freedom. Hey, use all of your freedom to serve your brother and sister in Christ. That's what I'm commanding you to do. We pray for one another, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, says it in Ephesians 6 as well. We seek to do good to one another. It says, let us do good to everyone. So as Christians, we seek to do good to everyone. Unbelievers and believers, outsiders and insiders. But who do we especially seek to to do good to? And it says this, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So those who are covenant church members here or regularly attend FBC Durham, we especially do good to them. We do good to everybody, but we especially look out for our own. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, But always seek, uh, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Same, same sense. And lastly, we submit and obey faithful God-ordained leaders. And so if you have a faithful God-ordained leader, this is what Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's another thing we do as we gather together. We submit and obey godly leaders. Now, so here are three questions and four exhortations. I will be quick on these. I might not even say all of them. The first question I have for you is this. Are you currently in a regular pattern of attending a specific church where you are listening to the reading, teaching, and preaching of the Word, participating in the Lord's Supper, as well as praying and singing songs with them? That's what we see throughout the Scripture. Are you in a regular pattern of doing that? Second question. Do you have any desire to do this? Okay. Are you willing to make the necessary sacrifices to be more involved with the regular assembly of Christians that God purchased with His blood? Are you willing to make sacrifices for this? Third question. Are you currently fulfilling any of these responsibilities that we just mentioned earlier? Do you even desire to actively serve in the church in this way? Do you desire to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ this way? These questions will be helpful in examining your salvation as well as your spiritual maturity in the Lord. Okay? So think through those questions. Think through honest answers to those questions. And now here are some exhortations for you. So, first, if you are not committed to a church, a local assembly of believers that consistently meet together, then seek to get committed to one. Make this your pattern throughout all of life. Be committed to a church in college when you first begin your career somewhere else. And then as you grow old, be committed to a local gathering of healthy believers. Okay. Second, pray that God will use you to build up the church that you commit to. Ask God to allow you to build up, serve, and love other brothers and sisters in Christ well. Ask that He would enable you to do that, gift you to do that, compel you to do that. Third, make some changes in your schedule that will allow you to do all this. Being committed to a local church will cost you time, energy, and money. Okay, It will cost you time, energy, and money. If you want to be faithful to this, then you may have to lay aside some stuff in your life. 
be willing to do this. So these are just some examples without names. I know certain students that take less hours per semester in order to serve the church more. So I'm very much aware that people do that so that they can be faithful in serving the church. I know students that drive to FBC numerous days throughout the week, wasting gas so that they can be prepared to lead the congregation and worship or something else on a Sunday morning. I know students that intentionally drop classes because they realize it is going to infringe on doing discipleship with other people in the church, younger people on college campuses. So be willing to make these necessary changes. God will be so glorified in this decision. And you will be filled with joy when you serve one another like this. Fourth, since the local church is this important, do not take a job or move to a particular location where there is not a healthy church for you to regularly attend. It's just so strange that when we think about jobs, when we think about school, when we think about all of these things, one thing that doesn't even come to our thinking is, is there a healthy church there that I can get involved in, that my kids could go to, that my wife and I can go worship at regularly? We don't even think about that stuff. We're thinking about how many zeros is behind that comma. You know? That's what we're thinking about. But this is something we need to be thinking about. Have this as a top priority when you're looking for a career or a college. Is there a healthy church for me to regularly attend? If no, pray that God will provide you a job in an area with a good church that you can serve at uh, and be a faithful member at. So that is the third teaching. Luke is going to hit on you're not a Christian if you don't have a different relationship with the world next week. So that's where we'll turn our attention to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this. Lord, thank you for just the reality uh, all throughout the biblical narrative that you desire that your people that call you by your name would gather together for the purposes of worshiping and adoring you. And you actually use these assemblies for the sake of making your name great throughout the whole world. People ought to look at FBC Durham and how we love one another in this building and throughout this community and on college campuses and say they are different than us. They have the Spirit of God in them. Something is going on that has never happened to me. We just pray that you help us be faithful there. We do fall short in numerous ways. We stumble in numerous ways, Lord. So please help us in this endeavor by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name.